0: Hello, and welcome to another moment with Eric Fleming. I am your host, Eric Fleming. And today, I have a guest. Um, Her name is Kim Creighton. Kim identifies herself as the anti-racist economist. And she has written a book called Profit Without Oppression. And uh, before we even get into the interview, y'all need to get this book. And the reason why I say y'all, uh, and not just black folks, um, because really, we're at an age now where uh White supremacy is on the ropes, and we are seeing more people uh, expressing thought that is taking advantage of that and 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 offering a new thought process a new Strategy of how we can coexist with each other so um and i'll that's that that's gonna lead into something to close out the show, but I really want y'all to to listen to this sister um because I believe she's going to talk to you and explain things in a way. Similar to, to other guests that I've had. But uh, I think you'll appreciate her style. So without any further ado, let me go ahead and introduce Ms. Creighton. As the anti-racist economist, Kim Creighton is dedicated to building a future that is supremacy, coercion, discrimination, and exploitation free. Formerly known for the hashtag cause a scene, she used her platform to call out harm, in a facade of inclusion, often advising with tech companies that were experiencing quote unquote challenges when it came to ensuring the welcoming and psychological safety of their work environment. After years of the status quo, Kim has shifted. She is no longer putting out fires and instead is ready to focus her time and efforts on moving forward. Having worked many years as an educator, she decided to also become the mentor she wished she'd had. Using her own lived experience to guide her, Kim has been actively working as an advisor, educator, and mentor to support the development of businesses that model profit without oppression by sharing knowledge and helping others develop skills in ways that accommodate the masses. In doing so, Kim is laying the foundation for a future that is hopeful, authentic, and strategic in action. In her bio, she asks the question, are you in? Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure and privilege to have as a guest on this podcast Kim Creighton. All right, Kim Creighton. How you doing, sister?
1: I'm doing well. I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, <laughs> uh, I'm happy to have you. And like I said, uh um, uh, I don't do this on video, but if it was on video, the audience would be happy because of that smile that you project. And uh, I greatly appreciate that in the morning. So thank you.
1: Well, I'm I'm glad you brought that up because um, this is why I'm doing the work the way I'm doing it now, because this work will beat you down. And so having a smile, I'm a silly, funny person. And so um, I have to just go in with a smile. It's just like, I have to set the
0: tone. <laughs> that's that's right. That's right. You got you gotta you gotta smile when you're doing this kind of work, when you're trying to get the truth out to folks. So um so normally when I when I start off, if I can, I try to find a quote that's attributed either to the guest or to the work that the guest is doing. So your quote uh for this is gonna be knowing who you are is the only true countermeasure we have against systems institutions and policies which are designed to define us talk to me about that quote what does that mean
1: mm, just you reading it it sits with my spirit it just um because so much of systems, institutions and policies which guide our thoughts words and behaviors globally are Designed, And I always put design in all caps because people don't get it. People keep saying, oh, the systems are broken. We need to fit. No, hell, they're not. The systems aren't broken. This shit is working as it was designed to work. And if you can't figure out how to define yourself within that, you will be lost at minimum and intensely harmed at maximum. Um, So this is why the first part of the book is know thyself. Um, there's so many people who want to do liberation work, we'll call it that. Um, I don't call I don't call work social justice, I call it social change. That's a whole nother thing because who gets to define what justice is? So I don't use that term. Change is the only constant that all of us live through. So I like social change. Um, and I like liberation work because I am doing liberation work. And if you have any desire To live in a world, as I said, designed in all caps to privilege the few at the expense of the many, you got to figure out who the hell you are in that and how you're going to navigate those systems, institutions and policies so that, as I said at the beginning, I can show it with a smile on my face. Because if I I think about this more than anybody I know. Not saying other people don't think about it. I say, more than anybody I know, and it's easy to get lost in it. It's easy to lose who you, particularly if you haven't spent the time self-reflecting, um, understanding what you like, what you don't like, and more importantly, what your boundaries are, because these systems, institutions, and policies are designed, particularly if you are not in the few, but in the many who are, it's designed to harm, to obliterate any boundaries we have it does not respect our boundaries it does not acknowledge our boundaries until and unless we know ourselves and we're willing to say you know what these are my boundaries. these are my rules and you either get with this shit or you walk away that is what they're not you this is what these systems institutions and policies are not used to this is why i know this is kind of long-winded but i'm long-winded this is why um I say something that is so a lot. I don't know what your what your audience makeup really is, except for you know African Americans, and I I use the term black, um folks, um, but this is why desegregation didn't work. It was a failed experiment. We needed to have the experiment so that the folks in charge of these systems, institutions, and policies could could we could remove all oh, we tried. So at least we can say we we tried it your way. The problem, the reason I say desegregation did not work was a failed experiment because it was never about accommodation. It was about assimilation. It was never about accommodating Blackness. It was for us to assimilate into whiteness. Hmm. And so until you have those conversations with yourselves and and have those honest assessments, you are assimilating. And assimilation is is designed... (laughs) by those who define us. Again, when you're talking about define us, that's why, again, when I say the word justice, who gets to define justice? I don't use words like fair. Who gets to determine what's fair? Um, I talk about equity. Um, I talk about um, welcoming and psychological safety. I talk about building a future that is supremacy-free, coercion-free, discrimination-free, and exploitation-free. Um, I talk about, um, when people talk about, oh, capitalism is evil, no capitalism is it. Capitalism is a theory. How it's been implemented around the world is problematic because in the United States, which we are the model for capitalism, it was designed again, capital designed with the explicit reason for justifying the annihilation of indigenous people and in enslavement of Africans, and not so nothing about that, um, again. It wasn't a mistake. It, it just didn't happen. It was by design and there's nothing to fix because there's nothing broken. But if you don't do that self-reflecting, that know thyself work, you don't get to that because everything else is a distraction. It's designed to keep you from getting to that truth, those truths. Um, those to look at to look at systems, institutions, and policies of whiteness, white supremacy, and anti blackness as as um um acting on us in every parts of our lives. Um this is also why I say whiteness is racist by design and can't be trusted by default without a consistent demonstrated anti-racist practice. And and I say whiteness um because I like to extrapolate out I don't like to talk about individuals because that's how, that's a distraction. We're ne- uh, one individual Trump, Marjorie Taylor Greene, um, Desantis, um, um,
0: call the roll. Call it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> uh, any of them. Um, d- and and people people I hope are waking up to the fact of dealing with an individual. Those individuals do nothing for us. We have to deal with the systems, institutions, their policies that were designed again to pro- to privilege these individuals, which are the few at the expense of the many. So. That's a long way of saying why you have to do that work, why you have to know yourself, because everything about us. And again, you just said if people you have video, you see my smile. But if you have video, you can see all the um, gestation, just gesturing that I'm doing because I have a visual of you are a human being. Your whole existence. If you if you close your eyes and think about it, you are a human being your whole existence. Your whole physicality, if you're looking at it just from the imagery of what I'm saying, is made up of labels that you did not create or design for yourself or ascribe to yourself. Mother, father, daughter, son, aunt, nephew, gay, straight, trans, black, Asian, Jewish, um, Catholic, Baptist, agnostic, Um, um, public official, private official, entrepreneur, all these things. So your whole, if you think about um, Erica Badu's Bag Lady, it's what it is. It's a, you're, you have all these labels. It is our work to take a look and literally examine each label and say, does this, and ask yourself these questions, does this label fit me? If so, does it fit me in a way that it helps me grow or does it help or or, or not? Because that's another question. If it's not helping you grow, you need to think about getting rid of that. Um, And if it's helping you grow, how can can you expand on that? So those are like steps to these evaluations. And we have to look at every label because one of the things that I realized was that fundamentally, I don't want to be responsible for anybody else, period. I am so happy that I don't have um, kids. And in partner relationships, I don't want to be married. Um, there's so much about the work that I'm doing right now, and I didn't know this in my in, in, when I was younger, but I had the the I I never had a biological clock ticking. I never um was had thoughts rushing to the altar. But because we live in a society that says kids and marriage are the thing, I kept turning myself inside out. Like why does this not feel great to me? Um, it actually feels like prison for me. It's it's not liberating for me. And one of the and some of the uh, one of the reasons is everything about let's let's just talk about relationships. Everything about relationships, particularly as a black woman, I'm my whole role in this culture is to be of service to everybody else. Hmm. It is not to be of service to me at all. And so when I step into my role and say, hey, I'm going to focus on me, I'm going to center me in my life. That's problematic for a whole number of people who I've been taking care of that I didn't didn't that I signed up for, that I didn't sign up for, that have assumptions, expectations, all these things about my live, how I want to live. So thankfully for me, I never got pregnant. I've been in many relationships, but when it came to getting serious, it was like, nah. I don't, I want. I believe there's a great growth when you're in relationship with someone else. But how our society has defined that and the labels they put on that, that does not nothing about any of that appeals to me. Particularly as I'm going out and I say I'm going to be doing the work of profit without oppression, the work of building supremacy, free coercion, free discrimination, free and exploitation, free examples and alternatives to this crap that we already exist for the rest of my life. This is my life's work. I need a partner who can get with that. Who knows that I need to be centered? That's hard for a lot of folks. And it's hard for a lot of folks. Again, going back to your original question about the quote. Hard for a lot of folks, not because that's how they really feel, because they haven't even really thought about it. but Because those are the the labels and the terms that they've been that have been defined for them of what this looks like. What in relationship with people look like. What does a husband wife look like? What does partners look like? What does parent look like? And I could tell you as a high school I, I taught um K through twelve. I taught started with pre-K and I ended with in high school. I don't want that shit in my house. I got that's I I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want it.
0: <laughs> All right. So I wish I could have had you on with the with the brother that does the marriage counseling thing. I think that would have been an interesting conversation. But anyway, <laughs> I'm i going to get back to um your work. What is the first reaction you get when you introduce yourself as the anti-racist economist?
1: Um just the same I get when I I say I'm I'm working to build and model a model of supremacy coercion discrimination expectation free world. Future. Folks who think they know what the hell I'm talking about, but they really don't. <laughs> um, um, I, I'm very intentional. Again, this goes back to doing the defining myself. I'm very intentional about the words I say. So the thing that the rambling I just did, I'm very in my head. I, I know exactly where I'm going, even if it gets off track, I can always bring it back. I I so I know what I'm uh, I'm talking about, what I'm doing, and so when I chose the title for myself of anti-racist economists, it was very intentional because I never, because based on systems, institutions, and policies as existing, particularly in academia, I w- it was hard for me to even call myself an economist, even though everything I was doing was helping bi- people build businesses and organizational or um, um, structures, policies, procedures, and processes, as well as how that impacts the economy. Everything I do is about business development, organizational development, and it, the economy. But because I don't have a degree in economics, it was hard for me to call myself an economist Economist, because I know what, again, that's when I gave a shit about what other people thought. Um, what people would say, like, where's your degree? Da, da, da. You cannot argue with me. I ref- this is what my work is not here to convince, convert, or debate. I'm not doing that with you because this is my lived experience and I'm gonna, not going to allow you to debate me about my lived experience. So the anti-racist economist was the best term i could come up with with what i do i don't even um define anti-racist as being against white supremacy and anti-blackness anymore i spent years doing that that t- that's exhausting that is how we get burnt out it is all negative we're sitting i mean your body is in constant tension waiting for the next trigger waiting for the next white supremacist to say something waiting for the next Good white person to say something and, and 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 not understand how they cause harm that's a lot to t- i mean every day I open up my computer, I was bracing myself for what was coming, so I was like, yeah I, I, if this is my work life's work, I refuse to center white supremacy and anti blackness no i, I refuse because at some point during the pandemic, I just had the thought I'm no longer putting new wine in the old wineskins and then when I think about Audrey Lorde's quote. The master's tools would never dismantle the master's house. So that's how they distract us. We end up putting resources, time, effort, energy, our health into individuals. That's that one thing. An individual is not going to change. You get rid of this individual. Somebody else is going to take their place because it's systems, institutions, policies. And so I was like, I don't want to be against that because that's fighting. That's that. What do I want to be for? And that's how I came up with supremacy, coercion, discrimination and exploitation free. I want to be for that. That's what I want to be for. And that's my baseline for conversations with people. If this is not your desire to have to explore, to 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 experiment with a how do we can how we can have a um, um supremacy free, coercion free, discrimination free and expectation free future. That's a non-starter for me. I'm not I'm not in conversation with you. But again, it took me going back to your first question to do that internal work to know myself because before I was engaging with everybody, it was the whole oh everybody's you know everybody's opinion matter no 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 everybody's opinion doesn't matter, not at all, no, I don't care, and I tell them that they get to talk uh-uh, I'm done, I'm not no i'm not we're not talking about particularly if they're talking about um the um the humanity of other people right or trying to deny the existence of other people's lived experience no i'm not having that conversation with you yeah
0: i i I feel you on that and that a lot of people who are on social media now that are doing work um i i I see that's more of a trend rather than more of an individual per se response and 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 when we talk about mental health that's real but i want to ask you this question and you've kind of answered it already but i want to delve into it a little more uh many people say that capitalism in america was inherently designed to be exploitive especially towards african americans um and you 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 said that capitalism is a theory but the way that it's been executed in the united states has been detrimental
1: and exported around the world
0: (laughs) right so um how do you how do you counter that narrative? Because a lot of people really feel that the only way black folks can get ahead is if we just get rid of capitalism altogether.
1: OK, so this is how I answer your question. And it's very simple. Name me one system, insti- name me one system, institution and policy that is not designed with white supremacy and anti-blackness. If you can name me one, then I would say switch to it. You can't. So, us swapping out capitalism with what? What are you going to swap it out with? Socialism is rooted in white supremacy and anti-blackness. Communism is rooted in white supremacy and anti-blackness as it's as implemented not about we're not talking about the theory, and this is why I do not okay I'm about to digress why I no longer not only no longer recommend but discourage strongly people reading um my, uh, Robin d'Angelo's white fragility. Because it's a, it's theory, but it plays out differently in practice. So the theory of capitalism is all all all, that, all that's about is um, private ownership of business and how Adam Smith, who is the what people consider the the grandfather of capitalism or economics, he believed in a supply chain with everybody having specialties. He didn't believe in uh, he didn't believe in monopolies. He didn't believe in slavery. He was an abolitionist. And guess when um, his book Wealth of Nations came out, 1776. What else was happening in the United? Oh, it wasn't even the United States then, in 1776. So the founding fathers absolutely knew about Adam Smith's work. They knew about what he was doing. They brought the parts of his theory, but they knew that the southern slaveholders needed um, to justify. Well, I'm not going to take that back. It wasn't just this, that's how we get away. We make the South seems bad. The North um, benefited greatly from the Southern slavery. So yeah. as a country, they knew that having free labor was gonna catapult them ahead of everybody else. So they justified it. So that is my whole point. you look at anywhere that has that think, I mean, like the England's form of socialism, Canada's forms of socialism, Canada, we're digging up dead bodies of Indian, uh, Native children, Indigenous children in Canada. It's all rooted. And then you're looking at, and we're talking about England. They colonized and subjugated most of the damn world. So it's all rooted. It's, so it's not capitalism. It's not the. It's not the, um, the that the private ownership is the problem. It's what we've done to justify how our behavior.
0: Right and you know i remember uh briefly studying like jules naeri and scientific socialism in tanzania but now i'm seeing in social media how the new president of tanzania is being applauded because their economy has grown like 20 billion dollars and that's not from scientific socialism that's from from capitalism so
1: i think about I think about china right it was straight clothes. they realized that this communism shit ain't gonna work for us. So we gonna bring in a little bit of capitalism.
0: Right. We'll have like little pockets.
1: Russia, Russia too.
0: Yeah, yeah, Russia, jet, when they when the Soviet Union was dissolved, it was like Russia said, yes. okay, we're gonna get into this capitalism market, especially when they were able to get into the energy sector, like, you know, exactly. and become an OPEC nation, yeah.
1: Exactly, so there is nothing inherently written in the theory of capitalism that is about exploitation exploitation is designed into capitalism
0: gotcha so that leads me to this question when i was growing up i was taught that the road to hell was paved with good intentions you devote a whole chapter of the book to uh, that theory and you you use elon musk as an example kind of elaborate on that, that that chapter about intentions.
1: Um, intention without strategy is chaos? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I would say after writing the book and seeing how Elon has been behaving since buying Twitter, um, I always thought he was a mediocre, unremarkable white dude who had great PR and marketing. And now it's showing itself. Um, he is not the brain trust that people assign to him. He is a person who, I mean, let's look at his background. He comes from South Africa. So he is a, a, a child of apartheid when it was illegal for black people. I mean, just to be black, right? Right. Then you have his parents, and his father's a hot mess, um, who he was able to leverage an a emerald mine to send his kids. To the United States when they were floundering in the in, in South Africa and was able to buy opportunities from them, for them. There's nothing great about that. That is systems, institutions, and policies designed to privilege the few at the expense of the many. So what I see is a person with uh, I want to say, what's coming to my mind, and I want to explain why I'm pausing. Because the word that came to my mind is insane. I was about to say insane amounts of wealth. But I don't use the word insane because it's not inclusive and it's derogatory to the mental health community or people who deal with that. So that's why I I, I paused. Um, But I'll say exorbitant amount of cash, of money. Not not even cash, because it's all in stock. Most of it is in stock. That's why he had to go out and borrow stuff. So who... Has shown his ass that he don't know nothing. He don't know his product. <laughs> he assumed that everybody on all the millions of people who use Twitter were having the same lived experience as he was on Twitter. And when he bought it and he started wilding out, flailing, I all I could think was this man has all this money and still has no peace. Yeah. There's nothing about his life that I am that I envy that I he has no peace. He is a professional troll. Think about that. You, have, you are the second, and the only reason you're the second rich, richest now is because you blew all this money. You took a $44 billion company that you overpaid for, and now it's worth $20 billion in less than six months? Right. What black person would be able to fail that spectacularly?
0: None that I know of.
1: Man, they would (laughs) uh uh this will be a congressional hearing, there will be charged, some kind of David we'd be in jail, we the FCs, we would they would be all over us. Again, systems, institutions and policies, not the individuals. Right. So intention so I when it comes to Elon, I don't know what his intentions were (laughs) at this point now that I'm seeing it, except to create chaos. He is a chaos agent, he is a white supremacist with and i would say the only goal of white supremacy is chaos and destruction and you see it in his behavior all it is is chaos okay, there is no thought there is no strategy there is no nothing so let me so we talked about elon but let me give you an a, a more um uh, realistic example of that so i um you can't see me but i just got m- all my hair cut off and it's it's hot pink right so i took um a picture and i put it on um social media and the caption says um, look what I, uh, look what I did today. And I put the flame emoji. A white woman comes on my, and comments. Oh, that's, it's, I'm actually going to read it. <laughs> she said, because um, it, it, I, I don't want to mess this up. And I'm going to read my, read my, she says, this is beautiful. And she puts this in all caps. This is professional too, exclamation point. I love when companies allow individual, individuality to shine because I love seeing everyone's unique beauty. Your hair is beautiful, that color, and I love your curls. And I said, thank you. But there are some concerns I have with your response. One, due to systems, institutions, and policies rooted in white supremacy and anti-Blackness, I'm no longer interested in what others think is professional. Two, I am my companies. So I determine what's allowed and the quality of my work along with most of the work out there, it is it it um it um is not impacted by what I look like. My work is not impacted by what I look like. And most of the jobs out there, there there is not that. And e and I even question those that think that if you're if that's the reality, it's more about control and assimilation. So her intention was to pay me a compliment. Right. Her strategy was batshit crazy. <laughs> oh, sorry. I don't use the word crazy. <sighs> All right. And and I'm saying this, and I'm I'm happy I'm making these mistakes that I would say, because this work, we will make mistakes. People are so afraid of making mistakes. You need to get out there, do some work, because then people don't do anything. Oh, I'm going to hurt. But then we don't go anywhere. Get into the habit of making mistakes, owning your mistakes, apologizing, and, and uh, making amends, which means to not do that same thing again. All right. So- her intention was to pay me a compliment. But what she do, did was brought in that um, white supremacy and anti-blackness stuff about what uh, what professional looks like for us. This is why I don't use the word microaggression. There's nothing micro about the behaviors of these people in your workplace. This is professional violence and it needs to be treated that way.
0: Right. And that, again, that's a that's also a, a something I've noticed too, is that people are taking the micro out. And You know, because you're quantifying, well, this racism is not as bad as that racism. So as this microaggression as opposed to, I guess, the opposite term would be macroaggression. It's like it's still aggression. And so.
1: Exactly. And it's still it's still and it still caused harm that you did not repair whatever it is. Right. And so this is why I don't believe in this. And this is, again, why all whiteness is racist by design and can't be trusted by default if you're a white person in my space and you don't understand from def- that uh, to engage with me, you have to accept that you are racist. And because what I only think I need to uh, ask you, all I think I need to understand is, are you a, a racist who's interested in developing a consistent anti-racist practice? Or are you full on white supremacist? Because I don't want to, I'm not having a conversation with them. But if you're a racist who has a uh, who's interested in building a Um, consistent, demonstrated anti-racist practice, I wrote this book for you because that is why we need supremacy, coercion, discrimination, and exploitation free. Because it's not enough for me to say that all whiteness is racist and are you willing to build an anti-racist practice? As an educator and a researcher, I'm going to give you the path to do that because I want to remove any excuses you have for not doing this work.
0: So there's one more thing I want Well, there's a couple of things I want to hit before we get through. And if you didn't tell people that you weren't an economist, they wouldn't know it by reading the book and One exactly. example is one example it's subversive.
1: is that book is subversive it's by design <laughs> it's by design it's a business book, yes,
0: yeah, but it's like it's you make a difference between a shareholder and a stakeholder yes. because. Our economic model as you define, our business model is primarily most companies are designed to satisfy the shareholder. You can counter- that's
1: how Elon got himself in that trouble. He did not want this company. He let his friends and cause if you've seen the text messages, he let his friends hype him up and get him ready and, and, and put this bid in. And once that happened, the board has it's not legal, but it's a fiduciary responsibility. To be only think about the shareholder value, so they had to take that deal. They had to force him because not only was did he make an offer, but he made an offer over the share price.
0: Right, Substantial. <laughs> so over they share could.
1: Own, so the fact that you, so if we were thinking about stakeholder value, we would have been thinking about the people who work for you, the people who partner with you, which is like your supply chain, your your collaborations, the people who buy from you. The people who are impacted by you, because all everything we do impacts somebody, and then the people who invest in you. Because if those four things are taken care of, the investment takes care of itself. So if they were, if Twitter had been working with the stakeholder value, um, um, framework, El- they wouldn't have taken. They wouldn't have had to try to force Elon into this thing. They would have seen that he didn't want when he start when he started that whole the next week or whatever. Oh, it's it's you know they got the. That um I don't believe this. They're lying. That that because he was trying to get out of it. They could have walked away. They could have said, "Okay, fine. You're not. You're obviously not what we need for this company. You forced an asshole to buy a company."
0: Right, and that and that's that's why I think when you talk about there's a difference in order to get us to the economics that is. Uh, you know that is that is supremacy free and 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 exploitation free that you got to look at not just who who you're satisfying that's invested in you but who satisfy who you're satisfying that needs your investment if that makes sense
1: well it it forces you to ask different questions cuz one of the questions is asked if we're looking at the, and we're going to get off on a quick tangent this regenerative AI or AI and everybody's jumping on the bandwagon because it's the shareholder thing. It's a question of when you're doing stakeholder value, is you start asking a question, just because we can, doesn't mean we should. Because this is not AI. There is no such thing as artificial intelligence right now. We don't have that. What we have are programs, coding <laughs> um, language programs that are designed to mimic. They're not thinking. And we are, we are, um, um, business leaders are injecting this new quote unquote, regenerative AI into products and services that will impact us in the long run. So that's another thing they, and when you're thinking about shareholder, you're not thinking uh, that's why people watch the stock market. They're thinking about right now. They're not thinking about, they think about long-term, but it's what is long-term going to do for right now? <laughs> you know, when you're thinking about stakeholder value, you, it's, it's a slower process. It is not the um, the Facebook move fast, break things. Because I don't have an issue with the move fast, break things. I have an issue with the move fast, break things, move fast, break things, move fast, break things. Instead of move fast, break things, stop. What do we break? How do we break it? Who do we harm? How do we make amends? What do we learn? Okay, let's take what we learn. Now let's move fast again. Stop. How do we, I mean, we don't, that's not what's a part of, that is stakeholder value. Because you're looking at something other than the stock part, the stock price, or the dividend. You're looking at how this product or service is impacting those who work for me, those who partner with me, those who buy for me, those who are impacted by me, and then those who invest in me.
0: Right. And I I think when I asked the question, impact was the word I wanted to use instead of invest twice. But I got to ask this question because this is a political show. Let's go. What public policy would you like to see enacted in order to achieve a supremacy, coercion, discrimination, and exploitation-free, capitalistic economy?
1: Okay, okay. so I'm a, I'm a back up out of this, and I'm not going to answer the question how you think it is because I don't think that I don't. It's not about policy to me because all of it is rooted in the same systems, institutions, and, and policies that are designed to privilege a few at the expense of. the, I don't care what policy you came out. This is my whole problem with. Medicare for all. This is my whole freaking problem with Medicare for all. It is not a progress. It is not a progressive, not a progressive um, stance anymore. The more the majority of the United States citizens want healthcare, so it's not progressive. So all these people talking about Bernie Sanders, AOC. I get y'all boo, but this is not a progressive issue. What I need y'all to do is talk about race. You there was, and I kept asking it every. I was getting into the Twitter fights every day, but nobody can answer this question. Show me if with all the data we know about. Uh, medical racism: How Black women and their babies die more than um, white babies. I don't care if they're poor. Um, uh, our wealthiest Black women are dying at a higher rate than our poor than the poorest white folks. When we look at um, the design of when we were all the globe was in COVID, and they were, we were told to use infrared um, thermometers and those oxygen meters. They don't read black skin, so we were getting we weren't getting accurate data for us um when you look at um the go to the um any in the public bathroom and they have the automatic hand soap or whatever and it doesn't work for you what we do is internalize well why the hell can not it work for us instead of damn it this thing don't read my damn skin tone so for me i don't want to talk about policies if you can't deal with the fact that everything we've created in this country and abroad is rooted in white supremacy and anti-blackness Every policy they bring out, I'm going to ask, how is, does this address the inherent racism and anti-Blackness and white supremacy in every policy you have? So it, to me, it's not about the policy. Again, Medicare for all is something we could all agree on. Well, most of us can agree on that health care is a right. Even with health care, I pay more than white people because I'm Black, because of because of the algorithms that they use, because of the, the tables that they use. Um, You can talk about housing. How many times we saw during the pandemic of black folks getting white folks to pretend that they own the house and they got more money? There are no policies that will not replicate current harm if we don't talk about this. And this is my problem with Bernie Sanders. Everything is not a class issue. If you can't, if you this is what I can say, if you're a politician in 2023. And everything you talk about, you can drum down to class and never talk about race. You are not a politician I want to listen to. You cannot deal with 21st century problems. You cannot. So, again, for me, it's not about individual um, policies, individual people. Because I'm going to say this and it's going to be people not going to expect me to say this. I have I want to say this carefully. I'm going to say, use the word respect. I have a sense of, I have a respect for the Donald Trumps, the Steve Bannons and the Marjorie Taylor Greene's, Mike Matt Gates of the world. And I'm going to tell you why. Myself as a black woman and many other folks would not have a voice. You would not know who I am if Trump was not on Twitter when he was on Twitter, saying and doing everything he was saying and doing because it emboldened. I was like, oh, hell, he can do that. He can say that. And what's happening, I find myself in a reciprocal relationship, a reciprocal relationship with these individuals. The more they say, the more people listen to me. If they're not saying people don't listen to me, I'm always always the angry black woman. Oh, you don't know what you're talking about. You, everything is about race. Everything's you just, just and I tell you, I'm a happy person, so I'm not looking for these issues. <laughs> it's my everyday freaking life. So but what I, and so Steve Bannon has this thing where he calls it the, I think it's the fourth Turing. It's not his, it's not his, I, um his, his theory, but I think it's called the fourth Turing. And it's basically that there are people who brought here on this earth to, some people are here to destroy and some people are here to create. He's very aware that he is here to destroy, but what the people who de- uh, are destroying don't understand is they must be destroyed in the process because I cannot build on what they leave behind. Mm. So the more, and so this is why I say no one escapes white supremacy harm No one, not even white folks, and that's why I also say right now the per, the parasite of white supremacy is now eating its host.
0: Mm.
1: White I, folks are waking up to see. Damn, I need to and that's why I tell them you don't you don't build a consistent, demonstrated anti racist practice for me. You're doing it for you because nothing about the systems, institutions, and policies as designed to benefit you at the, my expense allow you to be great you think you're great because they're telling you but you're mediocre and unremarkable yeah you can't be your you can't be your full self you can't do the work of understanding your full self because for you to benefit from those systems institutions and policies there's a there there's certain behaviors you have to do and when you step outside of those you get punished
0: yeah and it, it just it's just old uh old mother witch saying that it's like if you're sitting on me you can't move forward you know, yes. and so, yes. but uh your, your, your remark, I hate to take this thunder for you, but your remark is not really controversial because, you know, the reason why I have this podcast is because of Donald Trump. If, if we yeah. had just an average Republican president, I don't know if I would have been motivated to do this. You know what I'm saying? So I get it. And I, I remember, no,
1: it's controversial because people don't because again this is why I say my 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 book is subversive. I believe that we're all universally connected. Okay. And so I am connected to these individuals. They feed me and I feed them. What they don't understand though is what they're being fed, what they're feeding themselves is what's killing them. Right. And so that's why it's the controversy People people like, oh, I hate Trump. I ain't got, I don't have space in my heart and my head and my life to hate that man. He is a non-factor to me. I'm just, I'm not putting that in. But that is how things are designed. Because if I put all my energy on him, I cannot focus on building what I want to build. He's a distraction. That's all. There are distractions. So but they're necessary because they're here to highlight the problems in ways that they've never believed black people. We've been talking. So, again, I agree with you. The stuff they're doing is not new. It's been going on forever. White folks just didn't see it.
0: (laughs) Right. It's just, you know, like Farrakhan had when when um, I forgot, I guess it was Reagan, you know, and people were like criticizing him. And he said, maybe this would wake us up. And now we we've been in this era of Trumpism. Now it seems like we've we've awakened or, or, or we're woke. As, as Ron DeSantis likes to say, and and there's voices <laughs> and don't know how out there. to use the term. <laughs> right. And, and and folks are out there doing this, doing this kind yeah. of work and, and addressing the issues. which leads me to this. How can people get the book <laughs> and how can people get in touch with you uh, to, to get you to come, speak or whatever?
1: Okay, so the book is available everywhere. Even though I'm I, I'm going to um let you know that I am actually um in the process of getting it republished under my own publishing company, my own production company. It is The Futures Free Productions. So, um but it's out now and it, and it, there won't be a lag between it coming from my old publisher to my publisher. So, you can get it anywhere in the world. It is available everywhere. I prefer people get it from their local or independent bookstores. Um um, also, I am leaning more into my creative. So I am going on a comedy tour um, with Straight No Chaser because I want to get this as an economist, as somebody who decided not to finish my doctor's in business administration. Because no one should have to go into this much debt to understand how to build a business and understand the economy. I, my goal is to educate the masses. If you work at Popeyes, if you work at Walmart, if you work as a teacher, if you work as a CEO, I want everybody talking about the economy. Because right now, we're 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 left with a small group of people making economic decisions for all of us that we have to deal with. And so I want everybody being able to. Because right now we're ignorant, and there's nothing wrong with being ignorant. I want you to be informed. So, make, so when somebody's talking about the economy, you can have an informed understanding and opinion. So, I'm taking this on the road uh, with my friend Zoe, who was actually Dick Gregory's uh, manager for the last years of his life. And so, we're going on this comedy tour. It's um, she, her part. Her, the comedy tour is Dick Gregory taught me, and my part is straight no chaser. I'm bringing this this real econ- economy stuff to the every average everyday person because everybody. E- and that's why I call myself the anti-racist economist. Everybody should be talking about the economy. It should not be in the hands of this select um, highbrow. I want to get the uh, conversations about the economy out of Wall Street and out of Silicon Valley and just on Main Street. Um, and then um, a big thing that I am doing in December, which I'm uh, putting together right now for Art Basil, I'm renting out a, a, a space to do um, what I call what we're calling the future is free experience and I'm laughing inside because i i, I keep getting this visual of a mullet you know I, if people don't remember that you, you had to short <laughs> in the hair in the front and and so it, it'll be a party downstairs and business up front uh, up top so I'm renting out this space where I'm bringing in um creatives who um to interpret what supremacy coercion discrimination exploitation free looks like I want creatives to um to to show their interpretations of that and that's going to be on the lower level on the upper level i'm bringing my business school and we're going to be talking i'm going to be talking about um um the leadership management and mentoring and then that night i'm premiering my one person show all
0: right so that
1: one person show is called this shit didn't just happen the making (laughs) of an anti-racist economist
0: and so when you get ready to to as it gets closer to the time, as I tell every guest, now that you've been a guest, you, you anytime you have an open invitation, anytime you want to come on the show, just let me know. We'll make that happen. Um, Thank you.
1: And also, I just want to say you can. Um, I am Kim Creighton One on all social media.
0: Yeah, that's that's so, that's the other important thing I want to be able to to get out. So, Kim Creighton One on AI. everything
1: yeah k-i-m-c-r-a-y-t-o-n the number one on everything and in my in the link you'll see my link tree which will have all the other stuff
0: (laughs) ladies and gentlemen uh it has been my pleasure to have kim Creighton, the anti-racist economist and soon to be comedian in a town near you
1: uh
0: (laughs) on the podcast thank you kim i appreciate it
1: thank you so much
0: all right, guys, and we'll catch y'all on the other side. All right, and we are back. So, as the old preacher would say, wasn't that powerful? <laughs> wasn't that amazing? Um, I, I am really, really honored to have this platform because not only do I get to share these people that are out here doing the work to make this nation better for all of us, but I, I get to meet them. And I don't know if I would have had an interaction with a lot of these folks um, if I didn't have this platform. So it's a blessing for me to personally interact with them. And I hope that what they are saying is a blessing to you all that are listening. Um, One, to know that there are other people out there that are really, really making a difference. And a lot of them won't be on, mainstream media or even some cable networks right uh and so the beauty of podcasting is we're platforms are created to give these people exposure and then these these folks even are doing their own podcasts so it's really really cool um but but sister creighton is 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 really committed um, to what she's talking about. And again, get the book, get it and dive into it. It is, you know, I like reading. So I have to quantify when I say it's an easy read, but you'll be able to understand what you heard in the interview is in the book. (laughs) and I'll just leave it at that. It's very authentic and it's very well thought out. And uh and it's laid out in a way that makes sense. But she points out it was it was something she pointed out uh during the interview where she talked about making mistakes in what we do. And when I say we, I'm talking about People involved in public policy is that we make these decisions based on the information we have on the time at the time, and we fight things that are coming toward us based on the information we have at the time. And those of us who are concerned about fulfilling that part of the preamble, that say, of the U.S. Constitution that says promote the general welfare. Um, you know, we do things, right? She mentioned about desegregation being a failed experiment, but she, she said it was an experiment that needed to be done. And you can make that argument about the great society, excuse me, that Lyndon Johnson promoted to counter, well, not to counter, to coexist with the voting rights and civil rights legislation that he was pushing through uh even creating how the housing and urban development as a federal agency to address some things and 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 people don't tie in stuff they hear terms and all that but if they don't really read and study they just hear these terms and don't make the connection the Kerner commission was during Lyndon Johnson's administration and the Kerner commission was pointing out all these factors that was leading to riots in major cities in the United States, right? Why are black people upset? It's basically what the Kerner commission was set up for. And Lyndon Johnson, unlike a lot of political leaders took that findings in the commission and actually try to put policies in connection with what that commission said in real time. Right. Because sometimes you'll have a commission. They'll study stuff like, say, 9-11. And the president who pushed the commission may not be the president to get to Implement the policies based on how long the commission has to study or when it was set up or all that. Because being a president of the United States, you got a lot of stuff to do. But Johnson was one of the few that was able to get information and then try to create legislation in real time. And even though he only served really four years. And he's not going to go down as one of the greatest presidents primarily because of Vietnam in my mind and really studying him uh, and really being a fan of his per se. Uh, And, you know, if for some wild hair, I ever decide to get a PhD, (laughs) uh, I would go to Austin, Texas and, and, Camp out at that Lyndon Baines Johnson Library. Uh now I've been there, but you know, I've never pulled any of the little red boxes to, you know, do any work or research on it. But I think that would be the guy because basically he was the president when I showed up on this planet. And his presidency because Kennedy didn't really get to finish it. His presidency really kind of set the tone for where we are in America now. So I, I, I throw that out there, and people can debate that if you want to. That's great. Let's have an intellectual debate about that. But I would basically say that these 60 years or so, have been shaped because of the Johnson administration, right, and how he was trying to create literally this great society and and do his best within the power that he had to make America really the example that it should be, right. And I I can go off on a whole religious tangent because something came through my mind, you know, reflecting about how God showed up in different sets. And he said in his ambassador, Gabriel, to talk to certain people, right? And how those people have manifested into basically the three major religious organizations or religious institutions in the world. Judaism, Christianity, and Islam, right? But there was an instance in the United States, too. And so, without getting real deep into that, and if maybe I'll write a blog about it or something, I don't know, but The point I'm making is that there's a reason why a country that's only 250-odd years old has had a major impact in the world. And how much more of a major impact in the world if we could develop a society that is not based on exploiting or oppressing others, right? What kind of tone will that set for humanity for generations to come. And so that's kind of, if you read Kim's book, that's where she's going with it. And she's just dealing with it from an economic standpoint, right? So get the book, Profit Without Oppression. But... I wanted to close out and I'm really not going to be long today uh, because we were blessed to really have a long, deep conversation with Ms. Creighton, but to tie it all in, there was a gentleman that lived in that time uh, that I was talking about with Lyndon Johnson as president, who was an upfront person but was a major major factor behind the scenes, especially financially, to push the leaders like dr king and 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 John Lewis and others uh, Whitney Young uh, eventually stokey Carmichael, right um, even Roy Wilkins, all these guys when you see the picture of those gentlemen sitting in the room with President Johnson. Movements cost money. And one of the major benefactors of the the movement left this earthly realm this past week. And that was Hillary Belafonte. And when I wrote a social media post to acknowledge his passing, you know, I basically said that if we really want to honor him, right. um, That we would find common ground that our ultimate goal. Now, if we really want to honor him is to find common ground and to respect the dignity of every human being. And you can't do that. If you hang on to white supremacy, you're not going to find common ground. You're not going to respect the dignity of others. If you latch on and, and still hang on to a theory that because of the pigmentation of your skin or lack thereof, you're superior to anybody else. That's, that that defies even biology right so but my my thing and and you know a lot of people were talking about their experience in meeting him and so you know people had pictures and all that stuff and when i met him and I had the privilege to be around him a couple of times. When I met him, he came to speak for a fundraiser for Grassroots Organization. And even in his more senior years, he still had the fire. He still had the passion. He still had the grace and elegance and And he still had his wits about him, and he wasn't bitter or angry, may have been frustrated, but he was very optimistic he was very <sighs> encouraging about where we are and and what we're doing and and what we need to do, right. And, and as I was looking at all these different posts with all these people, some people were famous and some people were not so famous, excuse me, and some people were just friends of mine that had the privilege to meet him, that proved to me that he was truly a man of the people. You know, that he took the time no matter how big he was, how famous he was. And I, and I found out something, that he was the first recording artist to ever sell a million copies. Just think about it. And he did that like in the 50s and 60s. He, that's when he was at the height of his recording power. I mean, he was a leading man in Hollywood. And he basically shut that down. Because he didn't want to be typecast, right? He had that kind of power in the entertainment industry. And he used that power. He used that cachet. He used that celebrity to further the cause without any hesitation or equivocation. And he knew that he was putting his life on the line but he respected others and he really embraced Dr. King so much. So not only he was moved emotionally when he died, but he went to the point of making sure that Dr. King's kids were able to go to college. He provided the financial support for them. And a lot of people don't know that, right? that's not something he bragged about it's just something that he did so when i say that somebody like that is a role model that he was a man of his time he really was a man of several generations he was the true definition of what we call a statesman somebody that was looking out for the next generation and a generation after that and a generation after that, he was looking at America through a prophetic and futuristic vision as opposed to dealing with stuff right this minute. There were battles that had to be fought at that time. But his vision was not about just winning that battle. His 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 vision was about not only winning the war, but the aftermath. What winning that war would mean? What would be the lasting impact? And that's where my challenge is to those of us who have made a decision to be public servants, right? that instead of getting caught up in the moment and getting caught up in what is politically expedient, how about we look at creating a society that will endure over time and be a model for societies around the world, that we create an environment where fascism is not cool, where dictatorships are not cool, where civil wars are unnecessary. Right? And I know that sounds utopian, but it's within our capability because that goes back to the spiritual part. I had a brother talking to me and he was talking about how this is a a realm of existence. And most people would look at people that say that as kind of crazy. But if we really look at what the Bible talks about, especially Paul when he's writing these letters to all these different churches, what we call the epistles in the Christian church, That's all Paul was doing. He was addressing the concerns that that particular church was challenged with. But he was talking about a vision. He was talking about what the world was going to be like if we all fell under these teachings. Right. And so. If politicians who claim to be Christian really want to be Christian in their thought process, then they have to buy into the real vision. And the real vision was about goodwill. And the real vision was about unity. And the real vision was about not being fearful. Right? Because when you create systems to hold other people back so you can retain power, that's out of fear, right? When when you do things to destroy or cause chaos, as, as Ms. Creighton pointed out, then you're doing the work of the enemy as opposed to the work of the chosen one, right? Now that's me and my christian philosophy for those of other faiths just bear with me in what i'm saying right but that's my argument it's like you know these folks like franklin graham and all these these other people when i use the term pharisee with him i mean that because if you're caught up in the rhetoric of control and the rhetoric of suppression and the rhetoric of oppression and trying to justify that in the mantle of a man who gave his life so that we could live forever. It's you're not because that very man challenged the religious leaders of his day and said, y'all getting caught up in the law instead of the vision mission, right? So maybe that's asking too much of human beings if you look at it from a non-spiritual standpoint, but the reality is from those of us who look at it from a spiritual standpoint that's what we were brought here to do We were brought here to coexist and create a world that was the epitome of harmony. That's the epitome of peace. That's the epitome of empathy. And especially this nation. How else could you get a document from people who were enslaving folks? That's the living testament of why we should be free. You feel me? How else could we get people who had created laws to separate each other by race to write a document that even the most oppressed person could use to generations later to guarantee their right to exist in this nation? and to uplift their life right that that that's something that's beyond mortal comprehension that's that's almost well that's supernatural for lack of a better term and so when we approach this battle when we deal with people who don't understand or don't have a full grasp of their true spirituality, that don't have a grasp of their moral obligation to their fellow man. We we have to we have to look at it in in a term where we can navigate through it. We can see through the person and deal with the real enemy. right? the one that wants to seek and kill and destroy and all that, cause chaos, cause division. we can see through that man. and maybe we can rekindle the spirit of that man. maybe to to fulfill his or her purpose. right? I'm critical of people. I'm critical of things they say, especially those who are given the honor to be elected officials because it was fair for me to have criticism of the things that I did, right? And the ultimate review is when it comes to election. So for the people to give me nine years to do the best that I could, I will always honor and cherish that opportunity. For those who are currently elected, I hope that you look at it as an honor. But what I want you to do, for those of you who are not doing it, is to start looking at your job as a mission and you start looking at the world as it is and what it can be as opposed to what you're afraid it's going to be right because nothing on this earth is really designed to destroy us except each other And if we don't do something to fix that, to to get our mindset away from destruction and get it toward production and positivity, then we're going to continue to see these clashes and these calamities throughout the world. And that's what Harry Belafonte was about. That's, and he used art to help bring that message, right? You know, Harry Balifonte was for black people, but he didn't tell white people, you can't be on my show. As a matter of fact, he invited them in because in order to have that harmonic vision, everybody had to buy in on it. It couldn't be just a black thing. It couldn't be, you know, if the Latinx community wants to be respected, it can't be just certain Latinx, and it definitely can't be just Latinx, period, right? It has to be inclusive. Same with the AAPI community. It has to be inclusive. And you know well, I say I didn't want to be long, but i I just wanted to express that and i and he lived ninety six years, and so it was an honor and privilege to be in his presence during the time he existed. And to actually meet him, to talk with him, to listen to him speak, um, to to and, and if you have not, please watch this documentary called "The Sit-In." It's on the Peacock uh, streaming service. Please watch that. Uh, no matter how definitive the Wikipedia or the Encyclopaedia Britannica article about Harry Alfonte. Is you can see it in that documentary to sit in. It encapsulated what he was about. Right? Um, but our our goal and our, our testimony and and the way that we can show appreciation to his life is to fulfill that vision. And whether it's just through the podcast, whether it's another opportunity to serve the public, whatever role happens for me, that's where I'm at. And I believe that's where I was at when I was elected. But when you get older and you mature and you step away, you realize maybe I could have done more. Maybe I should have done less, you know? But it goes back to the point Ms. Creighton was saying, do something, make the mistake, learn from it, correct it, and go forth and be bold again. And Harry Belafonte, to me, was one of those men that walk this earth, that lived that life. All right, guys. Well, that's all I wanted to say today. Uh, look forward to communicating with you again. And as always, until next time.